This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, August 30th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. Police in Baltimore have been engaging in surreptitious mass-scale camera surveillance with apparently no authorization whatsoever. Jim Harper, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, argues that kind of surveillance is effectively pre-search, setting the table for the use of future general warrants by police. We recently learned that in Baltimore, they've been using mass-scale camera surveillance by flying a specially equipped plane that would cover something like uh, 30 square miles for as much as 10 hours at a time with uh, w- gathering footage. The footage could be reviewed at any time after its collection so that if an event were to happen, you could say, let's go see what happened that, at that corner and then see what happened before and afterwards as well. So uh, before an incident happens and uh, before police arrive at an incident, you have at least a glimpse of what happened. So you can track the movements of cars, track the movements of people, though they represent only, a say, a pixel in the image that's collected, but you can see where that pixel goes. And if it goes to a particular address, you can figure out who lives there and use that information to triangulate on on suspects. So a valuable law enforcement tool, but equally a tool that could threaten and invade privacy. It could invade privacy any number of ways, uh, but it would allow observation or reconstruction of who had uh, attended a protest. Uh, If there's someone who's an opponent of the police department, for example, who's law offices have they been visiting? Who else have they been visiting with? Uh, And obviously, an individual's travels from home to work, as well as to the marriage counselor, the doctor, the psychologist, whatever, can all be reconstructed using this uh, technology if uh, law enforcement or people in possession of the information uh, have access to the data. So it's concerning on that level, and and the stakes are high on both sides. Again, valuable for law enforcement, but threatening to privacy. What controls currently exist on police use of that information that when they are gathering essentially hundreds of hours in, in a real sense because you're gathering footage of many different areas at once? Well, in the immediate case in Baltimore, almost none. In fact, the... Uh, uh, local officials uh, reportedly were, uh, in many cases, unaware that this that this program was in existence. They just, you know, the police department found a guy who had these planes who did this thing, and they said, "Yeah, we'll try that." And so, for more than half a year, uh, that's been going on. Has it been used? How's it been used? Etc. Uh, we have yet to learn. Um, the question I'm focused on is how that kind of surveillance might be controlled by the Fourth Amendment. There are policy questions, and there will be statutes that may control this, but the basic protections of the Fourth Amendment are where I focus and what I'm most interested in. And those questions are hard because of the presumption that's so often right that things that are done and seen in public are not matters for constitutional protection. There's good language from uh, the case of Katz versus United States, the, the, the Lodestar case in 1967, that what a person exposes to the public is not protected but what a person uh, seeks to keep as private is. The Katz case, uh, for for all that it has done to help cabin surveillance, uh, is is falling out of favor, and in particular the reasonable expectation of privacy test. A court could say that a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy not to be tracked while they're walking around, but that's just a court 
coming over the top of society and saying, here's how the world is going to work. And as often as you get a good ruling on the reasonable expectation of privacy basis, you get a bad ruling on the reasonable expectation of privacy basis. So it's an incoherent standard. We've talked about this a number of times in the past that the reasonable expectation of privacy is something that uh, is essentially up to the judge at that time. Exactly right. And courts get it, get it right and they get it wrong, perhaps at random. Uh, more often wrong, I suppose, because they often are presented with drug cases. And in drug cases, they kind of want to find that an expectation of privacy is unreasonable. So the, so the test actually cheats against all of us having our privacy protection. These days, the Supreme Court is uh, looking around to improve the doctrine it's using. Uh, in a series of cases, and, and almost all of the, the most important recent Fourth Amendment cases, the court hasn't used the reasonable expectation of privacy test. So it's searching around for a new doctrine. Uh, what I've been pushing uh, in the court and lower courts is to actually interpret the Fourth Amendment more like a statute. That is, go through the elements of the, of the language and see if those things exist. So under this approach, this novel approach of treating the Fourth Amendment like a law, uh, you, would in, you would look at a given fact situation and see whether a search or seizure had occurred. Uh, then you would look into whether it was a search or seizure of things protected by the Fourth Amendment, persons, houses, papers, and effects. And finally, if it was, whether that was reasonable. So the question here is whether this kind of surveillance fits in to the seizure box or the search box of persons, houses, papers, and effects. And I think there's a good argument that it's a search of people's persons and homes, but it's done in reverse order. It's a pre-search. What about the effects, your travel patterns? Those are arguable effects. And in fact, in Katz, uh, the court was protecting the sound of a person's voice suitably shrouded. So there is an argument that your travel patterns are a sort of effect. But since you don't try to uh, control the fact of your travel patterns, it's not a strong case uh, for an effect. What's, what's happening here, though, I think is a search, but a special kind that I call a pre-search. Um, that's when law enforcement is taking a snapshot of everything so that they can go and, and later look for the thing that is of particular interest. It's, it's a technique that's made possible by technology and the ability to to gather and store mass amounts of data. It's a technique that never existed before. Let me take you through it by talking about a quintessential search of the type we're familiar with. Let's say your dog has run into the woods and you want to find your dog. Uh, you, take, you take that mental snapshot that you have of your dog and you go into the woods looking around for the thing that looks like your dog, sounds like your dog. That's how you search the woods for your dog. With this technology, law enforcement is taking a snapshot of the entire woods or the entire city of Baltimore over a lengthy period of time so that they can later fix on some particular thing and decide that they want to go and find it. So instead of deciding what you want to see and then going to look for it in the place it might be, they're collecting all the information about the place it might be and later fixing on what they want to search for. So one is a warrant. One, well, the, what, what you get is a is a sort of um, is a, the preconditions for a general warrant are laid, and then when law enforcement goes to look, that's ex executing the general warrant. 
So the interesting question, I think, for the administration of, of this idea that it's a pre-search, that it's a constitutional pre-search, is whether the collection of the data in the first place should be treated as the search or whether examining the data should be the constitutional search. That'll be a question for courts to administer when, when they, they arrive at this question. The seizure question, I mean, identifying all these things and having this mass of data available to you, is that, in a sense, a, a seizure? I think it is generally not a seizure. Um, I've been looking at seizure along these lines, too, and this is some, some mind-warping stuff for, for people who are used to the, the way things uh, have, have worked in the, in the era before the information age. Uh, you can seize data if somebody has sought to, uh, to, uh, to, to conceal it. Uh, and you make it available to yourself, you're seizing it. If you're copying it from their computer, you may not deprive them of possession. They'll still have a copy of it. But you're taking away their right to exclude. And I think that's a property invasion enough to characterize this as seizure. Uh, if you put a GPS device on a car, you're depriving the owner of the car of the right to exclude others from the car. And you're using the car. You're getting the benefits of the car to move your GPS device around. Uh, incidentally creating uh, tracking patterns of this of this particular car and its owner. These are seizures. They don't seize the right to possess, but they will seize the right to use, the right to exclude, and other bundles of property rights that law students are taught to, to think of this way. So this, the, the Baltimore surveillance, I think, is search. It's search of houses and people, but it's before the particular house and the particular person are identified. So it's a sort of fascinating, strange, backward way of searching, but I think it is searching in a constitutional sense. And of course, the National Security Agency does this kind of searching all the time. They don't use the word collect when they collect the data, but they use the word collect when they search the data, right? They do, and their use of language is, oh, I don't know, Orwellian. But uh, but, but there's an example, I think, of pre-seizure uh, where uh, our telephone records are have been stored by uh, telecom providers for, for their use under privacy promises and regulation that require them to keep it uh, private for us, keep it confidential. Um, the NSA until recently was absconding with this data, seizing the data and holding it to the, for, for uh, whatever later search it wanted to make of it, a pre-seizure. Uh, now under the USA Freedom Act, the data is being held by uh, telecoms. Um, as required by the government, I think it's an equivalent pre-seizure of that data, which otherwise uh, would be would be destroyed uh, as a as a incidental privacy protection for us and something that's promised by contract. Jim Harper is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>